have peace with God, uh, to consider the significance of a baby born in a manger. And, and if we're going to make sense of a baby born in a manger and, and, and going to make sense of what is happening in the Christmas story, we first need to go back a ways in our Bibles and consider some things that have happened in the course of this world that brought us to that point. You see, this morning, local gatherings of churches across the globe are entering into a special four-week season we in the church refer to as Advent. It's a word uh, in our English from a Latin word that is really a translation of a Greek word that is the word parousia. It just simply means coming. And as we think about the coming of Jesus, we think about it in two ways. We think about his coming as a baby, but then we also think about him coming as king. That there is the first advent where Jesus was born in a manger, and we think about the savior of the world coming into our world. And yet then we think about also the second advent of Christ that uh, points us to the fact that Jesus one day is coming as king and judge of the world. The Bible tells us in Revelation that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so I I just want you to think about this morning that right now you and I are living in the in-between, in between both of these two advents. Turn to your neighbor and tell them this morning, we're in the in-between. We're in the in-between. And and the season of Advent is characterized by a number of different words that really kind of paint a picture for us of what this time represents. There are many words and many postures we could use to describe Advent in each of our lives, but some that probably uh, that come to the surface early would be the word waiting, or the word anticipation, or the word expectation. Or, 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 or the word preparation. We think about these words as, as we are entering into this season, and Advent is this, this season of deep longing. It's this time in where it's not to happen immediately, right? Like so much of our culture today is this instant gratification culture. We, we really don't know what it means to wait anymore, Uh, We're so used to, even when we wait, we only wait for a few seconds or a few minutes. Uh, We we don't wait for days or weeks, you know. Uh, We we, we no longer really kind of live in an agrarian culture where that would have been very familiar to people as they had to plant something and then wait. I understand there's a lot of farmers in the room this morning, but but, but like that's really a kind of a foreign concept in our culture today, that that there's this season of waiting. And Advent is, is, is really characterized by that, this anticipation, this waiting, this longing, uh, preparation for something more. It is the expectation of what awaits that gives birth to those feelings in our life that there is more to come. It's this encounter, this expectation of an encounter with God that, 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 that in the Old Testament, you think about Old Testament saints, and as the promised Messiah was, was foretold and promised, and that in, in every generation they were looking for the coming of Jesus. And, and like, even as we read the Old Testament, you know, we can like turn through the pages of the Old Testament and, and there's moments where we're like, oh, this could be the person, right? Like our, our excitement, our anticipation as, as more than likely theirs as well would have. And, and then it was just like, oh, no, it's not, it's not him, but it is another. And, and there's, this, there's this true understanding as we turn to the pages of the Bible that in light of Jesus' coming and in light of his soon return, There is a way that each of us are to live our lives in the in-between. And notice as we're beginning a new series this morning, 
uh, on Advent, we're, we're considering that longing and that anticipation. So would you stand with me this morning as we read uh, from God's word, beginning in Isaiah's chapter, uh, the 64th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Where we've opened up to this morning, I, I know it's, it's, it's always dangerous to land right in the middle of a book. So let me just give you a little bit of a preface on what we're going to read this morning. This is a passage of scripture that contains a prayer. It's, it's the prayer of the prophet Isaiah. And he is pleading to God on behalf of his people. He, their, their city, their generation, Isaiah was living in a day of just complete mess and destruction. And so in the midst of what he is living in, he is calling on God to intervene. He is longing and looking for the day when the Messiah would come. And he, he describes it for us in his prayer in Isaiah's chapter, chapter 64 of the book of Isaiah. Follow with me. We'll read all 12 verses this morning. Listen to Isaiah's prayer as you consider how he is pleading for his people. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and the nations that... The nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts, notice right here, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him with joyfully works. You, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay. You are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Please, behold, please look, for we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a des desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has burned by fire and all of our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? And will you keep silence and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We're thankful that we can enter into this prayer of a prophet from many centuries ago. That Lord was dealing with things in his day that seemed so devastating. There were things that Lord grieved his heart as they grieved yours. And Lord, as he looked to you to intervene in his mess, Lord, in the same way this morning, as we pause before your word, we think about our own lives and things in our life that Lord is not the way that they ought to be. Uh, things that um, are painful, things that are grievous, things that feel like our life is just filled with destruction. And yet in those moments, Lord, what we need is a reminder that, that you work for those who wait. 
And so I pray this morning, Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit, that, Lord, you'd, you'd help us all as we focus on your word this morning to clearly hear your voice. And we pray that your spirit would do a supernatural work, Lord, in our lives today. And we ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, amen. amen. You can be seated. Notice we've opened in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is penning this passage some 700 years before the birth of Christ. As you think about Isaiah being a prophet of God, he is a man that is living in very desperate times. If you know the history of the prophet, you understand that his nation was divided, very much similarly to like our own, in our own history in the United States of a North and South a Civil War. And actually the same thing was happening in the life of Israel. There was the North, which represented the ten tribes of Israel, and in the South there were two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And, and and Isaiah is a prophet of God, and he's living in a day where things are really messed up. Things are really torn apart. His nation is divided. And, and, and we know through history and through biblical sources that, that, that the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, above the northern kingdom, was, a, was kind of a really big superpower uh, political player of the day. It was the Assyrian Empire. And, and we understand that in 721, the Assyrian Empire comes down from above the northern kingdom. It comes down, its armies come down, they sweep, and they, they take all of the northern ten tribes captive. And so, can you just imagine, like, the superpower of the day has invaded your people, although now your people are in the midst of the civil war, and yet there's this sense, there's this sense of tension and conflict in that, all then added to the conflict that is happening nationally and, and, and across multiple empires. And so here, Isaiah, notice here, he's this prophet, and he is down in the southern kingdom, all right? He's down uh, near Jerusalem, and the army of the Assyrian Empire is coming. I mean, they, they have made their advances, and they are pressing up against the door of his own nation. Can you imagine what's filling his heart? as a prophet of God, as he had for many years? You see, he had served through a number of different kings in the life of Israel, and, and, and he had proclaimed, really, the word of God faithfully. As a prophet, he had proclaimed that, that, that the judgment of God would soon fall. And now here he is. He knows his own nation is weakened. He feels it. He senses it. He, he, he sees the enemy literally at the doorstep. And he's living in a time when his generation had largely forsaken God. I mean, if you read the story of Isaiah... He is the prophet calling the people of God to repentance because God says this about them, that they had forgotten him. His people had forgotten him. They forsook the Lord, is what Isaiah tells us early in his, in his, in his book. And so with all of that in mind, Isaiah is pleading on behalf of his people, this generation that has completely forgotten God. He is pleading with God on behalf of his generation, and he had, as a faithful prophet, warned both Israel and Judah of what would soon take place. He had told them of what God had told him to tell them, and that was that they were in idolatry. They were living in idolatry. They were living as if God didn't exist. 
And their lives were caught up with so many other things that, of, of lesser things. And then they devoted their worship and, and devotion to false gods and, and all of these things. It was so grievous in the heart of God. And, and notice Isaiah, he's this prophet, and he's warning the people of the impending judgment of God. And so we look at chapter 65 and where, 64, and where we are this morning is a question. We, we really don't kind of know the exact details of what is happening right here in this passage when Isaiah the prophet is praying. But either there is a vision of exile that he sees that will soon take place with the Babylonian captivity, and he thinks about all of this, or more than likely, he is standing in exile himself, and his people have been displaced. But either way, he looks out on the world and the generation of his people, and he just sees devastation. He prays that God would see it. He sees it. But he prays that God would see it and that God would descend into the predicament of his people. He was living in a day of crisis on many fronts. Economic crisis, social crisis, political crisis. There's crisis within families with the division of the kingdoms. I mean, you think about all the crisis and all the problems and all the mess, and it just looks so devastating. And, and, and Isaiah, he's just, he's just pouring his heart out to God in, in, in chapter 64. That's what I see. I just see this prophet as he is moved in his heart with tears, and he is longing for God to intervene in the plight of his people. And so this morning, I want us to, to kind of think about the Christmas story as we think about this season of Advent, but I want us to back up a little bit. And I want us to consider the, the lens of the prophet Isaiah. I want us to think about how did Isaiah see the Christmas story? And how was he viewing the things unfolding in his day? And Isaiah is going to teach us something really simple this morning, and that is this. How you and I are to wait well in the mess. Like, he was in this period of waiting. And maybe this morning, you are here this morning, and that's, that just resonated with you. You feel like your life is messy, and there are things that are yet to be resolved, and there's this tension in your life, and you're waiting, and you're struggling, and you're longing, and you're, expect, you're, ex, you're expecting and anticipating for God to move, and God hasn't come through yet, and it's, and it's just in this season where you're waiting. And the question is, how do you wait well in the mess? So notice, Isaiah is going to teach us a number of things through this passage. If you're taking notes, notice in verse 1 where he begins. Notice his heart as he pleads before God. Notice how he says it in verse 1. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens. Do you see that there? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah, his prayer is literally, God, would you just tear it open? Would you just tear open the sky and come down into this mess? He's praying that God would intervene in such a profound way in the plight of his people, and he's pleading to the Lord. He's just asking God to show up and show off and break through and come through in a such a meaningful way. I mean, think about it. He's the guy in Isaiah 6 that encountered the holiness of God. He's the guy that was caught up in a vision to God's throne room. And recognize that God was so holy, so other, so 
distant and how sinful he was. And, and, and that was a vision that gripped his life throughout all those years. And now Isaiah here, and he's at this moment where he's pleading for God to intervene. And he's encountered the holiness of God. And he's, and he's, and he's, and he's just pleading on behalf of his people. Because here's a group of people that had experienced some really supernatural things in their life. And they deserted it. They walked away from it. And he's pleading with God through his tears. He's just pleading with God to come down. I mean, do you see it in verse 1? Do you sense the, the desperation in his voice? Oh, that you would rend heaven and come down. It's the same tone of the prophet Jeremiah as in chapter 9 where Jeremiah said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, for I have wept day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. It's the words of Jesus. As Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem in his day. And with tears. And he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you kill the prophets that, and you stone those that were sent to you. How often would I have longed to gather you, gather you and your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And so Isaiah, he is here, he's crying out to God on behalf of his generation. Because they're in a desperate place. And they need God to intervene. Notice how desperate it is. Do you see it in verse 10? Just, just jump down. I know we read it, but just jump down in verse 10. And, and, and notice the destruction. Notice the, the, what, 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 what he's looking out. Either by vision or experience. What he has seen. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become, what's the word? A wilderness. Jerusalem is a what? Desolation. Notice verse 11. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been what? What happened to it? Burned with fire. And all of our pleasant places have become what? Ruins. He's just looking out either by vision or by experience and it brings him to tears. And he's weeping for his generation. He's, he's weeping. Why? Because they forgot God. And where they're at and the devastation that they're facing and experiencing is all because they turned away from the Lord. And, and the reality of what Isaiah is facing is he's just overwhelmed by it all. And this vision of what he sees, it's, it's enough that it would just cut him off from any hope of what could happen, of any good that might come out of it. And he's at this place where he just looks and he sees a lot of mess and he's praying for God to intervene. And, 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 and I wonder this morning, have you ever prayed like that? How many of you, how, how recent has it been where you've prayed that way? God, would you just rend heaven and come down? Lord, would you, just, would you just break through the mess? I mean, how, come on, how, how long has it been since you've prayed that way? I think we all, if we go through life any length of time and we face some really difficult things, we, we sense that, we feel that, we feel like, like oh God, it feel, there's, there's this problem that Isaiah is describing, if you can catch it there, the, he's praying for God to come down because, because the problem really that reveals is he feels as if God is rather distant. You ever felt like that before? Do you ever felt like God just seems a million miles away? 
Do you ever feel like when you pour out your heart before God in prayer, it's like your prayers don't even hit the ceiling, man. They don't even get that high. Like you're just, you're just beyond a loss of hope. And this is where he's at. He's pouring out his heart to God. He's praying for the Lord to, to intervene in the plight of his people. And notice the theme of his prayer. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1, 2, and 3, you'll see the theme of his prayer in the word that's repeated. You say, what is Isaiah praying for in this moment? He's, he's not praying for a new chariot. <laughs> he's not praying for some new scrolls or writing utensils. He's not praying for his family. He's not even praying for protection from the oncoming destruction that is facing his people. In verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your what? Presence. Notice verse 2. As when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known among your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your what? Presence. Notice verse 3. And when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your what? Presence. What is Isaiah praying for in verses 1 through 3? God's presence. See, he wants God's presence to be felt, experienced, seen. This is not intellectual for Isaiah that he's thinking, oh man, I wonder if God's going to be present today. No, Isaiah's looking out of the destruction of his life and he's saying, I want to feel it. I want to see it as, as, as mountains quake. Lord, I, I, want to, I want to know that you're here and that you're near. And he's playing with God on behalf of his nation for his generation to experience the power of God's presence. He's longing for it. He's longing for it. But here's the question. Are we? Are we longing for it? How many days this week have you found yourself pulling away from the busyness of life just because you want to long to be with God? See, the problem is we're very much like the people in Isaiah's day. We don't long for God as we ought until we get into a predicament that is beyond our control. And then we want God to step in. And here he's wanting the people to feel and experience the presence of God. Notice he's teaching us here this morning how to wait in the mess. Notice verse 4. This is really the key for the whole passage. He says in verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who does what? Who acts, or we could say works, who works for those who wait. For him. Will you say that last phrase there? Who acts for those who wait for him? Say it with me. Who acts for those who wait for him? God is a God who works for those who wait for him. How many of you enjoy waiting? Anybody like a good, nice, long wait? Any of you just enjoy being put on hold on the phone? For, for like minutes that turn on to hours, it feels like. You ever go to the grocery store? I mean, it just shows us the impatience of our generation. I mean, we go, and if the self-checkout is like full, we're like, oh, you know? <laughs> like, I gotta wait to even check out my own groceries, you know? 
And we're just, we're just in this fast-paced society. We, we don't like anybody to, to be in, I mean, I mean, you're driving up the mountain the other day. There's someone in front of us. Jessica said, maybe someone from church, you know. And I'm just like, trying to go. It's like it's 55, and you're going 35 at the most, so let's step it. I, I, just, I just don't like waiting, man. I, I go into stores. I mean, that's why I love Amazon, and even Amazon. It's like, oh, I don't have two-day prime shipping anymore. i got to wait five days. It's just, we got to wait. Our lives are filled with, I mean, I'd love to think about at the end of my life, how much of my life was spent waiting. And they're, 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 they're kind of like simple and significant things that we wait about, but there are far more profound things in life that each of us wait for. You know, you think about a single person that's just longing to be married or, or a childless couple that's prayed for God to give them a baby and they go without. You think about a prodigal son or daughter that's wandered away, and as a parent, you're just pleading and praying that they would come home. An elderly person in a nursing home just waiting, wondering what's, what's all this about. You see, there's some really significant things in our life that is filled with seasons of waiting, and, and here in Isaiah's day was no different but he says that, that God is the kind of person that acts or works for those who wait for him. So the question in all of this is really this big question, and that is, what does it mean to wait on God? What does it mean to wait on God? We all will go through seasons of life where we will wait on God, but what does it mean? And, and notice in the Old Testament, there, the word for wait is a Hebrew word that, I love how it pictures things with different things. It's and I know we talked about this before, it's, it's the picture of binding something together. Like a, a cord is made, and you have different cords or strands of cord, and I'm not really sure how it's made, but they get twisted together, I know that. And there, there's these strands that, that get interwoven and bound together and twisted together. And so when the Old Testament uses the word weight, the, the picture there is this picture of binding. It's, it's this idea of, of what we are waiting in, that's one strand, and then this other strand is kind of um, our expectation, our hope, our, our trust, our reliance in that, and they're just being woven together. They're being bound together. And so notice when we kind of think about then what does it mean to wait on God, we understand that, that when Isaiah says in verse 4 that God acts for those who wait for them, who wait for him, but the, the big question I think we all want is, God, will you work for me, Right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that the question? The big question is, God, I don't want you to be working against me. I want you to be working for me, right? How many of you say, I want God to work for me? Can I your hand? And how many of you definitely raise your hand saying, I don't want God working against me, right? I mean, because that could be pretty bad. And, and notice what he says. He says, God acts, he works, but for a condition. For those who do what? Wait for what? For him. There's the, all of those words are important. And the connection in all of those things is that, that well, how do we wait? So, so if we understand what it means to wait for God, and we definitely want God to work on our behalf, the question that everybody's asking is how? How? How, how, how do I do this so that God works for me in my waiting? Well, Isaiah, the prophet, tells us it's not overhead, but I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 31. Turn back a few 
chapters in your Bible to the 31st chapter of the book of Isaiah. Here, Isaiah is going to describe very pointedly what it looks like on how we wait for the Lord. He says in, in Isaiah 31, verse 1, notice what he describes. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see, Isaiah says, here's how you know whether or not you're waiting on God, and that is if your reflex is to run back to Egypt, you're not. In that passage, what is Egypt? Egypt is, is, is signifying something in this passage more than just a nation. It's a picture of might and power and strength and, and the abilities of man. It's talking about chariots and, and horses and, and, and these things that we would look out on and say, those are very significant. Those are very powerful. And I think so, so many of us in our Christian life, we miss out on seeing God move and work in our life in profound ways. Because we're messed up from the beginning. Because from the very beginning, when a problem happens and difficulty happens and we're in the season when we're having to wait for something, our reflex is to run down to Egypt. Because we think we see it stronger and more mightier and, and, and more capable of handling whatever it is that we're facing. And so, so notice, it looks that way. But notice the Bible says, but they did not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Isaiah told his people that they forsook the fountain of living water. And they went and hewed themselves out cisterns because they thought that they could do a better job and have a better supply than God alone. And God's telling his people, there are some things in life that will only happen when I move and I work in your life in a powerful way, but you must wait for me. And you must consult the Holy One of Israel. Uh, we did a podcast a couple weeks ago of mentors in our life who shaped us. And one of the mentors in my life that I talked about was my granddad. And my granddad's been a mentor in my life probably ever since the time I was that little, you know? And my granddad's mentored in a lot of different ways. But the one that comes to my mind is the way that he is constantly, faithfully praying for me. Every Saturday, I'll get a text message or a phone call from him asking me, what am I preaching tomorrow? And asking about what the message is so he can pray about it. And I'll never forget, I had this awesome opportunity one year in college. I lived with my grandparents for an entire summer. And so I got a lot of up-close, personal interaction with my grandpa and my grandma, and, and there's this moment in life when you, you know you're facing something and you don't really know how or what or what to do, and so you know, I'll, I'll just call them up, and, and I'll just start talking about my day and things going on in life, and, and, and I'll, I'll throw out something that, that, I, that I want them to weigh in on, because I need your wisdom. And you know what he would say nine out of ten times? He'd say, Aaron, have you prayed about it? Oh, man, I'd be like, oh, no, but okay, but still, would you tell me what you're going to do, you know? And uh, now, I, I, now I just don't ask because I know he'll say that. I just know I need to pray about it before I call him and then I can get his insight on it, you know? 
But Isaiah said there were people in his day that didn't consult God. They'd run down to Egypt because it didn't look like things were going to work out. And rather than acknowledge the Lord, rather than wait for God, God works for those who wait for Him. Actually, what God's saying in this passage is that God would have saved them in quiet restfulness, but they preferred to escape to their own way. And get this, God did not work for them. God did not work for them. So I want to ask you a question. Where are you at this morning? Where are you at in life? What situation is happening in your life today that you want God to work in? And you want Him to come through. You want Him to render heaven and come down. What, where is it? What is it in your life today that you feel so helpless about? And you long to see something change. But if you are honest this morning, everything that you've tried to do to change it up until now hasn't worked. And you're just, you're feeling like you're in this mess of discouragement and devastation. And you're saying to yourself, Lord, would you just render heaven and come down? And, and God, God may be saying to you this morning, oh, there are things in your life that I will act and work for if you wait for me. But maybe the question that God is asking you this morning is simply this, will you trust me? Will you just lay it down? <laughs> Relinquish control? And trust me in it. And trust as you wait patiently, quietly in that stillness of trusting, binding your heart to the promises of God. Will you then trust that God will work for you in that? You see, this is that. What Isaiah is teaching us about what it means to wait well in our mess. You see, one of the, one of the things in our society today is people in our modern society, measure success. They measure our status by the ability that we have to control things in our life. And sometimes, here's the thing, sometimes in our church, even in, even in church culture, we have this idea that if I do the good things, if, if I obey, if I, if I, if I, then somehow I'll be able to control the outcome of what God's going to do. I don't know if any of you have ever been there before. But you say, well, okay, God, if I do this, then, 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 then this will happen. As if, as if we're trying to control God. Can I tell you something, my friend? You don't get the chance to control him. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you can't control God. You can't control God. I mean, it reminds me of the story in the Chronicles of Narnia when confronted with the idea of Aslan the lion, who's a picture of God for us. Lucy asks, she asks the question, she says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's a king, I tell you. We can't control God. And if you're trying to manipulate God by your actions of obedience to get from Him what you want Him to do, can I just tell you something this morning? It won't happen. 
because he is stronger than you and wiser than you and more powerful than you than you can ever imagine. That's why Isaiah tells us in, in verse 8, notice in verse 8, he describes the Lord as a father. He describes the Lord as a potter. He says, we are all the work of your hand. What's the picture? Both of them are pictures of dependency. Called Ashland to dinner the other night. Dinner's on the table. Jessica's calling it out. Where's Ashland? She's not running it. Go back to her room. She's hunkered down, sitting by in the recliner. In her Elsa costume. She's, she's not wanting to move for dinner. I said, Ashlyn, come. It's time for dinner. Nope. She's right here. Yes. Boom. Pick you up. Set you down the table. Her actions don't control me. We're going to clay? Say to the potter, what are you doing? I mean, Jeremiah speaks to that. Certainly not. Why? Because this is God's universe and He's allowed to do things in a way that brings Him the most glory. Amen. And so notice in life, when we, when we consider Isaiah's prayer, notice, I know you're holding with me, notice what happens here. He, he is telling us how to wait in the mess. And I have, there's more here than we have time to explore, but notice in verse 5, he tells us that there are those who remember you in your ways. You see, how do we wait in the mess is, is by looking back and, and, and tracing the fingerprints of God in our life or in the stories of others. I, I think I'm realizing, the older I get, that, uh, that, that we, we cannot in any way predict. I mean, I don't know why I even thought I could, but we, we cannot predict what God will do in our lives. But in obedience, we step out and we follow Him. And in that, we can, you know, the will of God is not so easily discerned looking forward, but it is really easy discerning looking back. Because we can watch and see the fingerprints of God in our life or in the lives of others. And, and that's what Isaiah is saying. He says, hey, he says, I know things look pretty bad right now. But if we were to look back, we would recognize that we are finite and God is infinite. He says in verse 6, we, are all, we all fade like a leaf. And then he says in verse 6, that we're all failures. <laughs> what are you saying? He says, God, we're finite failures. Because in verse 6, notice what he says. We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah is saying, I've sinned, my people have sinned, and yet, God, you're sinless. Because I see you in that vision of the throne room in your holiness. And so Isaiah, he's just motivated and moved by these things as he, as he thinks about his life being so finite and, 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 and this failure. He says, he says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Literally, the picture there is a, is a menstrual rag. It's this, it's this picture of just filth. And what Isaiah is saying, he says, those are our best deeds. Those are the righteous ones. God, it's a mess. Like, Lord, we're in a mess. Our nation's in a mess. Politically, it's in a mess. And economically, it's in a mess. And, and Lord, I'm just looking over the destruction of this city by experience or vision. And I, I, I'm just gripped by the fact that, Lord, we're in dire straits. And you, I'm just praying that, God, you'd render, you'd render heaven and come down. God, would you just break through the mess? Can I ask you a question? Has there ever been a time when God did just that? When He rendered heaven? When He 
rend heaven and he came down? Has it ever happened? When? When? Someone tell me when? When Jesus came. When Jesus came, I mean, it's what, it's what this whole season represents. It's what, it's what this time of the year is all about. That, 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 that God met us in our mess. In our filth and in our despair. You see, the Christmas season of the first advent is all about that. That Jesus enters our mess. The Bible says in Romans that God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was born in the mess of a manger to redeem us out of our mess. In Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ is given this vision of the Messiah that would come and He would render heaven and He would come into this world. You see, the good news of Christmas is that God sent His Son, Jesus, to be born in a manger. God sent His Son, His sinless Son, to enter our world and to be with us, to be Emmanuel. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message in John 1. He says, the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God did something about our mess. God did something about our sinfulness. And that is He sent Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus, to come and enter into it. Emmanuel is God with us. It's this awareness of God's presence with us. And maybe you're here this morning and things in your life are a complete mess. This morning there's so much loneliness in your life, brokenness in your life, devastation and grief and loss. And you know what I believe with all my heart is this, that it's not an answer from God that you're needing today. I think some of us think that. Like, if God could just explain it, then I'll be okay. If God would just give me the answer. But in all love, can I tell you this morning, it's not an answer from God that you're needing today. But it's a greater awareness of the fullness of His presence at work in your life meeting the deepest longings of your soul. It's an awareness that you need. It's an awareness that God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. But those of you this morning that have come to a moment in your life where you have confessed your sins, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, the Bible says the Spirit of God has not just come to this world, He's come to indwell your life. And what you need today is a greater awareness that God is with you. In the mess. And God's doing something in the waiting. And you're searching for answers and God just wants you to simply patiently wait and trust Him. He wants you just to let go of trying to sort it all out. And He wants you just to lean into Him and trust Him. And trust that in the waiting, however long that will be, that He is with you. And He is working. 
for those who wait for him. So the question really this morning is this. Do you want God to wait, work for you? Do you want God to work on your behalf? And if so this morning, what is it that we need to confess as God's people? What, what are the sins in our life and the pride or the arrogance or the things that we have put up a wall between us and God? And what are the things this morning we need just to confess our sins and those things that we're so desperately trying to sort out, why don't you just lay them down before His feet and trust that a good Father, an infinitely wise God, will work on your behalf. And experience the joy of Him being with you in the mess and bringing you out of it by His grace. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, Lord, we just confess right now things in our life that are hindering our relationship with You. Truly, God, we might be like the people in Isaiah's day that had forgotten You. We've forsaken You. There's no longing in our heart for You. God, even the good things that we're trying to do are, are these filthy rags in Your sight. And like Isaiah, Lord, would we just admit it that we're finite and that, Lord, we're failures. And, Lord, we need Your cleansing forgiveness in our life today. I don't know where you're at this morning or what's going on in your life, but if today God's impressing on your heart that there are things in your life hindering your relationship with Him, would you not make it right with Him today? Do you not want to experience the joy of God's forgiveness? Do you not want to experience the joy of His presence in your life? And then I wonder, my friend, what is that thing in your life that you've been trying so hard the last number of weeks to fix? No amount of effort can resolve the tension that you feel in your soul. And this morning, God very clearly is saying to you, lay it down. Lay it down. Leave it alone. Wait for me to work. And would you, without, with a heart of distrust this morning, trust that God will come through? Will you, will you embrace kind of what this whole season of Advent is? That we're kind of entering into the season of waiting and you're going to come with this heart of anticipation and you say, God, I don't really don't know how you're going to bring us out of this mess. But Lord, by faith, I know I can look back in my life and see moments where you've never failed me. You've always come through. And so, Lord, by faith, I'm going to trust you in this one. That you're going to do just that for your honor and for your glory. Father, I thank you to know that your spirit works on our behalf in ways that we can never understand. We're thankful to know that you're a good father who loves us and cares for us. We're thankful to know that, Lord, you know what's best for us and that you do everything according to a heart of love and and, and, our, and, and care and Lord that we can trust you we can trust you Lord help us as a church this morning just to say that that we trust you in what you're doing in our lives we ask it all in Jesus precious name all God's people said amen, amen. would you stand with me this morning just invite you to bow your head there before the Lord as Jessica plays and take a few moments just to meet with the Lord
to be reminded of his awareness, to be, have an awareness of his presence in your life today. There are many things in our life that are beyond our control. But what we need this morning is this awareness that God is with us and he's working. Father, we thank you in advance by faith for how you will work on our behalf. We pray that out of this day, that, Lord, there will be testimonies and stories looking back at what you've done and we'll be able to say as a church, Lord, you did it. Not me, not someone else, not, not, not what we think is powerful in this world, but, Lord, we would give a testament and say, you did it to the praise of your glorious grace. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.